Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-18. We're speaking with Barry Schwartz, the official documenting photographer for the 1978 Shroud of Turin Research Project, the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud here on Real Israel Talk Radio. Barry was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin, and uh, he's part of the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud. In uh, 1978 is when that was taking place. Today, he plays an influential role in uh, Shroud research and education as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website. That is www.shroud.com. Shroud.com. It is um, considered really the oldest, largest, and most extensive Shroud resource on the internet. They say more than 15 million visitors from over 160 countries, indicating that there is quite a bit of interest in this Shroud of Turin. Now, back in 2009, he founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association or Research Inc. It is Stera, S-T-E-R-A. Barry Schwartz is my guest today on uh, Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Welcome to the uh, podcast today. It's really great to have you along, okay? My pleasure to be here, Avanom. Thanks for the invitation. You're more than welcome. Now, um, I think really before we get started into too much of the uh, uh, of the technical aspects and detail, uh, just tell us a little bit about your life, where you've been, what you've been doing here, your uh, uh, travels, and you know, kind of what you've seen in your in your years, if you would please. I was a member of the team in 1978. Uh, as the official documenting photographer, I made uh, photographs of the team at work, which have appeared in you know National Geographic and Life and Time and Newsweek and all those places. Um, and because I had those photographs and because they were important enough to be in demand by authors of books and television documentaries and magazines, I could never disengage from my involvement with the Shroud. And uh, so I always felt like somehow my work hadn't finished, but in fact, we finished our work in 1981 formally, and that was really the end of the STIRP team. Um, but I couldn't really let go of it all because I had to administer those photographs. It took 17 years after we finished our work before the scientific evidence ultimately and finally convinced me this has to be the real thing. Hmm. So that wasn't a decision based on an emotional response. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, so I did not have any emotional ties to Jesus. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, from Squirrel Hill, where that was sort of the Jewish neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. At that moment in my life, uh, God wasn't part of my life at all. Sure. Uh, I was looking externally to kind of connect with God. Nothing was connecting for me. 
And finally, I, I was really being kind of torn up and not understanding even what I believed myself. And finally, one day I decided instead of looking externally, I should look within myself. I mean, my grandparents lived with us. We followed the dietary rules, two sets of dishes, two sets of silverware, uh, lit the candles on Friday evening. My grandfather got up and dove and prayed every morning uh, with the tefillin and the, you know, the whole thing. So it was like Fiddler on the Roof in a lot of ways. Hmm. And I had never felt that connection to God. And I was I walked away from Judaism at age 13 because of the hypocrisy that I saw at age 13. Actually, I recognized it at age nine. Hmm. And I didn't want to participate, but I promised my grandfather I would have a bar mitzvah, so I did. And the next day I walked away and didn't look back until I was in my 50s. Hmm. So one day I sat myself down and I said, you've got to come up with an honest answer for people. Part of my job is just to tell the truth. I'm good at that. I'm not good at hmm. making up lies, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down and for the first time searched within myself to determine what I believed. And I found that God had been there all along, just waiting for me to acknowledge him. And how many Jews can say it was the Shroud of Turin that forced them back to their faith in God? But it did. It did so with you. It did with you. It, it did with me. Exactly. So I can actually say that, that because of the shroud, I had to confront my beliefs and come to terms with what I believed and discovered that I was deep in faith. And I've always had faith in God. I was never an atheist. I might have been agnostic or whatever that means somewhere in the middle of it all. But I really didn't even think about God. It wasn't part of my life at all that I knew of. <laughs> but after 17 years, the final evidence came to me. Uh, through one of our other team members who happened to be one of the other Jewish guys on our team, Dr. Alan Adler, who is a world-renowned blood chemist. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Al who gave me sort of the last piece of the puzzle that enabled me to say, okay, I have no more questions. This has got to be the real thing. Everything else, we've proven it's not a painting, it's not a photograph, it's not a scorch, it's none of the things that the skeptics have claimed. So that got me to a point where I came to accept the shroud was authentic. And within probably days or a week or so of that conversation with Al Adler, another friend called me and he said, Barry, you know that shroud thing you're involved with? And I kind of laughed. I said, yeah, I know that shroud thing I'm involved with. He said, well, you know, it turns out that's just a photo made by Leonardo da Vinci. Hmm. And I laughed. I thought he was joking. He said, no, no, I'm being serious. And I had this kind of question in my mind, where did he get his information? Remembering, I was a member of the team. I had access to all the data, to all the science. I was on the inside and didn't realize that the average person out there didn't have access to the same materials that I did. And the media was never reporting it correctly. And I was part of the media at that point in my career. And I said, where did you get your information? And he said, well, my wife and I were checking out at the grocery store. Mm. Well, here in the U.S., the grocery store checkout counters where all the tabloids are. And so he had obviously seen it on one of the tabloids. And at that moment, while I was still on the phone with him, I had an epiphany. I had this realization that the, the public doesn't have access to peer-reviewed journals and scientific journals. They, so I had a manila folder on my desk, and I wrote four words on that folder. Consider building a website. Uh, obviously... There's an interest out there, and, and I was offended by the lack of accurate information that was getting out there, not just about the Shroud, but about our team and about who we were and what we did. And so I built Shroud.com, 
as a means of making accessible to everybody the same evidence that convinced me, a non-Christian, that this is most likely the cloth that wrapped the body of the historical Jesus. Hmm. I believe, in retrospect, that was the moment that God reached down, smacked me upside the head, Hmm. and said, here's the real job. This is why you were on that team. Because I always wondered, you know, why me? Why was I on that team? I didn't have that emotional thing. It didn't Hmm. matter to me. Frankly, I was really thinking free trip to Italy. That was the depth of my involvement at that moment in my life. Let me ask this uh, question. Is it still possible to just reject it and say, "Ah, so what, that it was scientifically proven to be real? Yeah, I, I think, sure, it's quite possible for people to reject it. I see that everywhere I go in my travels, there are people who reject it. Now, I have to be honest that mostly my Jewish friends kind of shrug and go, yeah, it's not important to us because they look at Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies and say, well, he didn't fulfill them all. My Christian brothers say, well, yeah, that's why there's going to be a second coming when the Mm -hmm. rest of the prophecies will be fulfilled. For my ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox friends, to them this is irrelevant. Uh, To some of my other Jewish friends, they're like, oh, yeah, you're doing a nice job, but it doesn't really sink in or have any emotional uh, thing for them. And, And I understand that. And that's not a commentary on whether or not he was the Messiah or not. We weren't trying to prove the resurrection with our science, which, of course, is impossible anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, our purpose was simply to try and determine how the image was formed. And in the end, we couldn't answer the question. We don't know of a mechanism that can make an image with those chemical and physical properties. What we do know is that we have an image there that can't be duplicated by modern science, and we live in the most image-oriented era of human history. Everybody's got a a camera in their pocket with a computer attached, all in their telephones. We are talking with Barry Schwartz, the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, which uh, he was part of that team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud back in 1978, and uh, we are discussing more on this idea of the Shroud. Now, now Barry, I want to take it into another few questions here. Uh, Can you tell me why do some people believe it isn't it is the image of Yeshua or Jesus? There are many who don't. And maybe you could address those who don't and those who do. First of all, we have four different accounts of what was done to Jesus in the New Testament. And we know that he was uh, inflicted with a series of tortures and injuries that were exclusive to him. Now, the Romans crucified lots of people. The Romans scourged lots of people. They may have even speared lots of people in the side. We don't really know that for a fact, but they might have. But as far as we know, only once in history did the Romans fashion some kind of a cap or crown of thorns and place it on the head of this man. And that only happened to Jesus because he had proclaimed himself king of the Jews. So they were humiliating him. Oh, you're the king, eh? Well, here's your crown. Hmm. And the man of the shroud has all these scourge wound or these uh, bl- bloody spots on his head from that cap or crown of thorns. He has a spear wound in the side. He has crucifixion wounds in the hands and in the legs. His legs are not broken as was in the uh, prophesied in the prophecies. He had no broken bones. 
they typically would break the legs to hasten death on the cross. wasn't necessary. He had already passed. And so uh, when you add up all those, the skirt and the scourging is one to me that is perhaps the best reason for me not to believe this is an artwork. We've all seen artworks of Jesus being tortured before crucifixion, of his back being horribly rended and scourged. Even Mel Gibson did it in his movie. Mm-hmm. However, if you're really standing behind somebody with a whip, if you take just a tiny step closer and you hit that person with the whip, those thongs are going to come around and they're going to scar the front of the body as well as the back. Mm. On the man of the shroud, he has almost as many scourge wounds on the front as he does on the back of his body. You tell me some medieval artist would have thought to do that. In all the historic artwork of Christian artwork throughout history, nobody's ever depicted Jesus with scourge marks on the front of his body. But we know in reality they would be there and they are there on the shroud. Hmm. Forensic experts have studied the bloodstains. They come from direct contact with a body. They were not painted or applied. Wherever there's blood, there is no image beneath it. The blood inhibited the image formation mechanism, whatever it might have been. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. There, You know, I always quote Sir Arthur Conan Doyle at this stage. It, uh, it, through the lips of Sherlock Holmes, he said, If you eliminate all the possibilities, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, is most likely the truth. So you would you would then say from all of this um, research and your photographing of the shroud and doing it in a scientific way, you would say that uh, what you saw, what you photographed is consistent with the gospel accounts of the torture and death of Yeshua. You would say that 100 percent. And with forensic accuracy. Meaning? Meaning that no artist applied these stains, these blood stains or these scourge wounds to an artwork. They came by being in contact or uh, in con- connected somehow in covering a human body. So, so why is it that so many uh, scientists, at least up until... I don't know how recently I couldn't give it a year, but why are there seems to be so many scientists that say "Ah, it's just a medieval painting or whatever? How can they say that? Well, they can say that because the uh, radiocarbon dating was done in 1988 that determined that the shroud could be no older than the year 1260. Unfortunately for that person or for those guys, um, They violated all their own protocols. They only took one sample from that entire cloth, so there was no control sample. Um, The results came out, and immediately the Oxford Laboratory, there were three labs, Oxford, Zurich, and Arizona. Mm -hmm. Oxford Lab received a million pounds sterling from an anonymous donor or donors for debunking the shroud. Really? The gentleman over at the British Museum, who was the overseer of the three labs— and was supposedly uh, kind of keeping tabs to make sure they all followed the rules, which none of them did. That gentleman left the British Museum as soon as the money arrived at Oxford and took a permanent chair at Oxford with some of that money. So the question is, when did they know they were going to get a bunch of money? And if they knew ahead of time, doesn't that in itself uh, negate whatever results they got because of conflict of interest? Radiocarbon dating is now a $4 billion a year industry. Hmm. Nobody bites the hand that feeds them. They'll never admit they did anything wrong, even though the opportunities have been there on several occasions. The first scientific paper came out challenging that 
their results in 2005 by a chemist who was on our team from Los Alamos National Labs. Los Alamos National Labs in uh, New Mexico. The Manhattan Project. Correct. First atomic bomb. How tall is the man on that shroud? Okay. So let's start first by remembering the material that the image is encoded onto. It's a finely woven herringbone weave uh, linen cloth, Mm -hmm. pure linen, no cotton, no wool, no mixing of the kinds, which you probably know is forbidden by Mm -hmm. Jewish law. Mm -hmm. And the problem with it is that cloth can be stretched very easily. Uh, When we photographed it and examined it in 78, we laid it out on a steel table and fastened it in place with magnets. And we smoothed it out to get as many wrinkles out as we could so it would be a clean field to photograph and to study. And in in 2002, they did a big intervention. They removed the patches, the backing sheet. They steamed it. They got rid of the wrinkles. They... um, vacuumed it so no pollen studies can ever be done again and when they finished it was seven centimeters longer than it was before they started what how much distortion did they add to the image we don't know Hmm. the point simply being to do precise measurements from the shroud of turin is difficult just because of those reasons and there's another reason that's even more important the image on the shroud is a function of distance between cloth and body. And once you get past about four centimeters, about an inch and a half, the image mechanism stopped. So it only worked at a a minimal distance, but that's how Mm. it encoded depth information into the lights and darks of the image. No photograph does that. Mm -hmm. There was an interaction between the cloth and the body. So with that in mind... Are you talking about a chemical interaction between the cloth and the body? I don't know if it's a chemical interaction or something else, but the likelihood of a chemical interaction is a possibility, yes. So here's the other problem. Unlike an artwork where an artist begins by drawing an outline of the subject, so there's a defined edge, right? Mm -hmm. The Shroud of Turin image just gradually fades out at the peripheral. Why? Because the distance increased past an inch and a half, that's it. No more imaging. So we don't have a defined edge. So where you begin and end your measurements becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. So that's why we can't give you a precise measurement, but we can estimate 5 foot 10 to 5 foot 11 as the height of the man of the shrub. That that's the size of a normal of a normal man. I, w- I was thinking, is there any indication that uh, people of that time, uh, Second Temple period, that they were shorter people? Or yeah, there are a lot of people who've said that. And my answer to that is, look, if he was five ten or five eleven, he was pretty strong upper torso because of the work that he did. They call him a carpenter, but more likely he was a stonemason. There aren't very many trees there in the Middle East to be a carpenter with. Um, at any rate, uh, if you look at that man's body, you can see that he was pretty strong guy, upper uh, body strength. But five foot ten, okay, that would be probably taller than the average, mm-hmm. but not extraordinarily taller. If, if he mm-hmm. were an extraordinarily tall man, which six foot two or something like that would have been really extraordinary in first century, very unusual. Can you uh, address uh, the aspects that of uh, uh, the image having a, a, a beard? You can see it very clearly on this uh, shroud. And 
there seems to be a V-notch pulled out of the center of the beard that would be consistent with the gospel accounts that they plucked his beard. So we can – and look, I have a beard. You have, you have a beard. I don't mm-hmm. know about you, but if you catch one hair in the zipper of your jacket when you're zipping up, it brings tears to your eyes. Imagine ripping out a <laughs> chunk of a man's beard. Right, and right. And also remember that in the Mideast, a beard is something of stature. So the, the V-notch – uh, is what you you can see clearly in the shroud that it was that there is a piece of the beard was pulled out. Hmm. Hmm. And I, I want to go back to this one question, something that you had said earlier on, uh, that the crown of thorns on his head. You you said that the in Roman crucifixion uh, they had not done that to any other. Yeah, we we find no record of that ever being done anywhere. Before or after, so uh, to me, that's a strong indication that what we have here can only be Yeshua. You know, this is not the typical blonde hair, blue-eyed, Anglo kind of guy sitting uh, as an image on a on a piece of cloth. Well, think about this: in the first century. People rarely traveled more than a few miles from where they were born throughout their entire lives. There wasn't a commingling of the gene pools the way we have it today. You can be anywhere on the planet in 24 hours. So a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, first-century Jesus in Jerusalem would have been extraordinary. They would have mentioned that for sure because look at anybody in the Mideast, and you've lived in Israel, you know, people have brown skin, dark hair. That's pretty normal for somebody born in that area and lived, uh, lives in that area. And that's, I'm sure, the way Jesus looked. However, you also have to remember this. If you look at Christian art through the centuries, you'll see that artists always depict Jesus in their own image. So in Europe, he's blonde hair and blue eyes. In Africa, he's black-skinned and mm. black hair. Mm. So it just depends on the culture, and the art. The artists are representing their own culture when they depict him in their work. So what what, what, quickly, what does he what does he look like in the shroud? What does he look like? He looks like my grandfather. There was a study done about 15, 20 years ago, an anthropometric study where they took in the measured the measurements of the long bones of the man of the shroud and compared them to anthropology tables of different cultures. And they determined he was a Semitic male. What a surprise, because like I said, he looks like my grandfather. Mm-hmm. He, he looks like a Jew. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just look at him. And I mean, that's sort of the typical way that uh, you would expect a Jew to look. About 10 years ago, I was going back to Pittsburgh for a high school reunion, and my Catholic friend said, look, while you're here, why don't you give a shroud talk? And I said, well, go ahead, arrange it. The Archdiocese of, of Pittsburgh uh, put me on the radio, gave us a venue, put me on, uh, you know, put me in their bulletins, and we had a great time, and my mother was there, and my brother and my cousins, you know, the whole family showed up, and it was a great time, and we were driving home, and my little Jewish mother was sitting there in absolute silence. I always say when a Jewish mother is silent, be afraid, you know, because that's not typical. And so she'd only heard that lecture from me. And I, so I turned to her and I said, well, what do you think? And she looked at me and you got to remember, this is a woman who immigrated as the youngest of four kids at age seven from Poland, high school education, not a sophisticated woman. Mm-hmm. She said, of course, it's authentic. And I was shocked. It took me 17 years after I left my DNA on it. She hears one lecture. She says, well, of course, it's authentic. So I said to her, Mother, what makes you say that? 
And then she got that condescending tone of voice a mother knows how to get, you know. And she said, Barry, they wouldn't have kept it for 2,000 years. If it had belonged to anyone else, it wouldn't have mattered. Wow. When you think about it a little deeper, it's a profound observation because the shroud bears the blood of the victim must be buried with the body. Yes. Number two, it, it bears an image, which is still forbidden to this day by Jews and Muslims, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact. Correct. It wasn't until the fourth or fifth century that Christian art began in the Orthodox Church with the iconography of the Orthodox Church. Up until that time, even Christians made no depictions of Jesus. This is Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. We're here to explore and discover insights into the ancient biblical, Jewish, and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. We will return for the second half of the program after this short break. listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-18. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Join us as we continue to explore and discover insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. I'm speaking with Barry Schwartz, uh, part of that team that conducted all of the uh, in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud of Turin and coming to grips with the fact that uh, uh, it was his involvement with that Shroud that brought him to an understanding and acceptance that, uh, that it had to be the man that uh, we believe it was. Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, that it is an image from the first century. It's not a painting. It's not a drawing. Barry, what keeps people from worshiping this, uh, this image, this shroud image? If it is, in fact, Yeshua, people will naturally perhaps gravitate toward idolatry, toward elevating it, worshiping it, uh, turning it into, uh, you know, turning it into some kind of a, uh, you know, kind of some kind well, of a relic. Well, uh, it's considered a relic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's never been recognized by the Catholic Church. Wait, you said it again? Never been recognized as authentic by the Catholic Church. No, but... No miracles have been attributed to it. No miracles are attributed to this shroud, therefore they don't recognize... They've never but recognized it? They've never recognized it as authentic. But, but you have all of this scientific data to show that it is authentic. Well... We can't prove who the man is ever. Yeah, but you're you're going through the whole thing and saying, well, the crown of thorns, the uh, you know the yeah, the, the scourging. I mean, I mean, it's it, it's all real. I mean, what else could it be? All of, all of the evidence points toward its authenticity. But the church, only one set of scientific tests in depth have ever been performed mm -hmm. um, until another set of tests are performed to perhaps further our knowledge of the shroud and to answer some of the questions that were raised by our data. In the, we came back with a thousand new questions. 
we were there just to determine how the image was formed, and we couldn't really answer that question. So we could tell you what it's not, but so, we can't tell you what it is. Okay, so so you were on this 1978 team to investigate it, at least scientifically, medically. Uh, you had genetic scientists that have no, looked- gen- no, no genetics because genetics really didn't exist in 1978. Uh, can you tell us really what kinds? Uh, what kinds of scientific tests actually were performed on this shroud to indicate or prove its authenticity or disprove sure. it, I suppose? We we weren't trying to prove anything. We were just trying to determine how the image was formed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all of our tests were geared, A, to be non-destructive, that would cause no harm to the cloth, and B, to just help determine and characterize the properties of the image to determine how it might have formed. Uh, we were able to prove it's not a painting. And by the way, a graven image, something that people worship, is usually a man-made artwork. Mm-hmm. And we've proven the shroud isn't an artwork, so it can't be a graven image. And I remind my Christian brothers when I'm speaking to a Christian audience that we Jews know about graven images because we had a golden calf that cost us 40 years in the desert. Mm-hmm. So we know about graven images, and the shroud is not one of them. So with that in mind... The tests that we did was an entire battery of tests over five days and nights that included spectral analyses, chemical analyses, photomicroscopy, photography with ultraviolet fluorescence and reflectance, x-ray fluorescence and reflectance, which helps determine uh, chemical components that are there. We were looking for paints and pigments. We had with us the spectral properties of every paint and pigment from medieval to modern days and found no traces of any of it on the shroud. We eliminated a lot of possibilities, but that left us unable to answer the base question of how is it formed. And you and your team and uh, subsequently over the last 20, 30 years, has there been any further any further scientific um, uh, uh, examination of it? Not at all. Uh, Is it the church won't let it happen or what? That's correct. And here's the thing. Our permission to examine the shroud didn't come from the church. It's a surprise when I say that to my Catholic friends particularly, that uh, our permission was granted by the owner of the shroud, King Umberto II, the last Duke of Savoy, the last of the line of monarchs of Italy. They were kicked out of Italy after the war in 46, and they went to exile in Portugal. And that's where King Umberto lived because the king of Portugal and the Italian royal family had joined in marriage the late in the late 1800s so there was a connection between the two families so they went and lived in Portugal and that's where I've met the the folks from the royal family is in Portugal but the legal owner once King Umberto died in 1983 um, he decided not to keep continue the process of keeping it in the Savoy family he decided the best thing would be to leave it in the hands, not of the church, because the church is an institution with 130 cardinals that would have to vote on any decisions, hmm. and they knew how difficult that could be. Sure. So they decided, the king decided one man would be the owner, and that's the living pope. At that moment in history, it was uh, John Paul II. When he passed and Benedict was elected, The moment he was elected, he became the legal owner of the shroud, and that was passed down in 1985. The pope is the legal owner. Now, 
that means that Francis could authorize further testing. But my sources, both in Rome and Turin, say Francis will not do that. So if we're waiting for another set of tests, it's not going to be with this pope. He has other issues that are more important. The shroud is safe and sound, better preserved today than ever in its history. It's in a nitrogen-argon atmosphere kept flat in a fireproof cabinet, light tight, with temperature and humidity controlled by computers. It is better preserved now than ever before. It's not going anywhere. It'll be there later. And frankly, I, in my personal opinion, uh, I believe it serves the church's purpose best to remain a mystery. Hmm. So do you, uh, do you think that if the shroud were to be proven, um, proven authentic, uh, by the church, do you think that would alter any of their views on anything yeah, theologically? I, I, I don't know. I, obviously, I can't speak for the Catholic Church, but uh, I can say this, that there's nothing pressuring them. See, at one point in time, the concern was that the shroud might be degrading, that the image might be fading or something like that. And so they've stopped all of that by doing what they've done with it over these last, uh, since 1997. It was almost destroyed in a fire in 97. In 98, uh, the Italian gas company put up 25 million euros and they built this special cabinet for it now. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's better preserved than ever before and not at risk of anything. So there's no rush. And look, every 10 or 15 years, they bring it out and put it on public display and a couple of million people will come and see it. And And the only stipulation, by the way, that uh, King Umberto made when he left it to the Pope is that it must remain in Turin forever. You don't you don't uh, anticipate that, uh, say, it would, uh, you know, it would be brought to various museums across the world uh, to be put on display for five or six weeks at a time or something like that. No, that's a nice thought. But based on this strict uh, condition that King Umberto made on it going to the living pope, uh, it can't leave Turin. They can't take it to Rome. Uh, after the fire in 97, they took it to the archbishop's apartment because they, it can't leave Turin. And so they have to honor that, I believe, mm-hmm. and I believe they intend to. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I, you know, I can't speak. And if the pope decides otherwise, he can do so. He's the legal owner. But as it stands now, the next public exhibition isn't until 2025, which also happens to be the next holy year of the Catholic Church. Probably not too many of our Jewish listeners would know that. Mm-hmm. Right, sure. So, okay, yeah. uh, I want to I want to I want to come back to this um, uh, to this question I had earlier about the scientific tests that were performed on it, and you mentioned something about uh, uh, this microscopic. Uh, examination. Uh, uh, you had a more technical word for it. Uh, can you go into that a little bit more at all or no? Well, it's real simple. We cre- we did a series of what we call photomicrographs. Those are photographs through a microscope, basically. Um, and uh, we had a very sophisticated, beautiful instrument loaned to our organization, our, our team, by the manufacturer um, uh, from Switzerland, I believe it was. And basically, uh, we took specific areas of the shroud, all predetermined in our original test plan. And we did photomicrographs of 
blood stains, serum stains, water stains, which are on the cloth from the fire of 1532 mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps before that. Um, so we took all of the key uh, kind of highlighted areas that are um, on the cloth of, of importance, including areas that where there's no image, no stains, no scorch, no blood uh, as control areas where there was no impact of anything. And uh, all of those were photographed mi uh, through the microscope to give us a better idea of what is on the surface of the cloth. And basically, we have the fibrils on the very top of the fibers that are yellowed. It's monochromatic. They're all the same color. The only thing that makes the image look lighter or darker in areas is the concentration of those yellowed fibers. So where there's more yellow fibers, it, the image appears darker, like a halftone in a magazine made of little dots. The lighter areas have fewer dots spread far apart. The darker areas have many more dots much closer together to create the effect of a darker area. And consequently, that's what we found on the shroud, that the color of the image is consistent throughout. The only difference is there's a higher concentration of those fibers in the image areas than in the non-image areas. So how did the image get there in your professional uh, experienced opinion? I'm assuming you want me to be honest. I'd I, I, be nice, yeah. The only honest answer is we don't know. How about that? Now, it's hard to find a scientist ever willing to say we don't know. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a scientist, okay? I'm one who is an educator that tries to report to people what we truly know about the shroud. And the only honest and correct answer is we don't know of a mechanism that can make an image that encodes depth information into the lights and dark. Look, I can make a photograph with camera. I can light that subject matter to imply depth and shape and form by using highlights and shadows. But I'm not encoding any distance information into the image. And on the shroud, we have distance information encoded, topographical information hmm. that is in the density of the image. It's very hard to describe verbally, and I can show you in a photograph in about five seconds. So what we have is an image with properties unlike any other image I've ever seen, and I've seen quite a few in my long career as a photographer and videographer. Um, so, you know, it's frustrating for people to say, well, after all this, you still don't know how it was formed. And the answer is correct, that we don't. If I were to ask you to uh, uh, to speculate on that, would you could you speculate at all or no? Yeah, I could. I could. I think there's one theory that was proposed by uh, chemist Ray Rogers of Los Alamos National Labs, mm -hmm. who is the lead chemist on our team. Uh, Rogers felt that being a chemist, he was looking for a chemical reaction that might solve the mystery. Well, it turns out that the cloth, when it was manufactured, was soaked in a, uh, a naturally occurring detergent that acts like a fabric softener, Saponaria officinalis, from the soapwort plant. And Saponaria, they would rinse it in there, and what it would do is it would make the cloth a little more flexible, because linen, unlike cotton, which is very soft, linen's a little stiffer and this would soften it up a little bit it's a naturally occurring thing soapwort is the plant rogers felt that the soapwort uh, treatment would have left a microscopic layer on the surface of the fibers that would be a pentose sugar without getting too chemistry uh, mm -hmm. technical mm -hmm. here 
Rogers was looking for something that would react with that sugar to cause a discoloration. And he discovered, uh, or he didn't discover, but he came upon a very well-known, well-documented chemical reaction called a Maillard reaction. It's what makes beer its golden color and bread its golden color. Mm -hmm. And he found that, you know, when we die, the very first thing that happens is ammonia gas starts coming out of our nose and mouth. And eventually through our pores, and eventually the body begins to decompose, and then you get the heavier amines uh, of decomposition, putrescine, cadaverine, that make the terrible smell and all mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. We have no indication of that on the shroud, but the body immediately starts giving off these amines, these ammonia gases. So he did an experiment where he took a piece of ancient manufactured linen, treated with saponaria, and he treated it with ammonia. The saponaria treated one where he put the drop of ammonia stayed yellow permanently. Wow. The non-saponaria treated one when he dropped the ammonia on it, the ammonia evaporated and there was no staining at all. So the Maillard reaction can cause a yellow discoloration of the surface of the fibers. Now, Rogers knew that that wasn't the only thing. He told me that there was something else at work that caused those gases to stay perpendicular, um, collimated, if you will. We don't know what that was. He died at the moment that he was further exploring it. Sadly, the cancer that he'd had for over 20 years finally took him, and he was unable to finish. So I would say if I had to pick anything in the realm of existing science, I would say that that particular chemical reaction, based on distance between cloth and body, based on the way gases would react in a tomb, there would be higher concentrations in some areas. As the distance increased, it would be less of a concentration, a lighter portion of the image. That accounts for that property of the image. It's the only theory that's been proposed that could account for the encoding of the spatial data into the image. Continuing in in your or our speculation, could his resurrection light energy? Would that have anything to do with anything? Or is that just kind of too far out of the box there? Well, I, I would say this. Uh, that's a question that comes up all the time. So let me address that. Number one, nobody witnessed the resurrection. So we don't know if light was involved or not. We don't know that. Mm -hmm. What we do know is this. Resurrection's a test of faith. A whole Christian faith is based on the belief of the resurrection. The problem is science can't go there, and here's why. First of all, the scientific method says you can't use an unknown to prove another unknown. The mechanism of resurrection is an unknown. The only way science could enter into this is if we could go into a laboratory and resurrect people to see what kind of images we get. Well, obviously, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Of course. So I always tell people that if your faith is so weak that you need science to support it, you should go back and re-examine your faith. That's where the issue is. Uh, and I don't think that science can answer that question. That's something that goes beyond where science can go. And look, I used to be afraid of the word resurrection until I became educated and realized it's right out of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Look, resurrection is a test of faith. I always tell people that follow what's in your heart don't worry about science on that. If, if you're at that stage of it, then who cares what the scientists have to say? Follow what's in your heart. Okay, where, and by the way, yeah, go I wanted to add something earlier and I, I forgot about it. When I talked about searching within myself to find my faith, 
when I said that to a Catholic priest friend of mine, that that's where I sort of made that discovery, he smiled and said, you know, Yeshua said the kingdom of God is within us. And so I said, so I said, oh, okay. Well, then I have to agree with that because that's where I found him. Well, you know, you know, Barry, this is a very Jewish thing you're you're mentioning because uh, if you go back to uh, to the Torah portions, the Torah reading in uh, uh, Genesis chapter twelve, it's uh, uh, it starts off with the call lech lecha, lech lecha, and uh, you know the 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 rabbis have always come up and said, well, you know, really in the Hebrew that is saying go to yourself, lech. Lecha, go uh-huh. into or unto yourself. So you're doing you're doing a good Jewish thing there. And even Jesus said that in, in different terminologies, but he implied the same idea. Sure. And sure. Uh, I got that, like I say, I got that from my Catholic <laughs> priest friend. Uh, uh-huh. And now I'm getting a, a similar response from my Jewish brother here. So nobody denies, or I don't think many people deny the existence of the historical Jesus. It's generally, I would say. I mean, there are going to be some, but it, it's yeah, generally, sure. yeah. So, you know, the way I see it. Um, everybody has to get there on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't find God by going into a building and reciting certain words. I found God by opening my heart and looking within it honestly for the first time as an adult. And God had been there all along. I realized it as soon as I got there. And the shroud played a very important part in, in your journey. It did, but not the way people expect. They think it was the shroud itself. It was my involvement with the shroud, my willingness to speak out publicly about it and to generate that website to educate people about it. It was all those things that forced me because my job, I always felt, was simply to be honest. So it put me in a position where when people asked me what I believed, I didn't know the answer. And I felt that it was something that I needed to come to terms with so I could answer that that same question honestly because I get that question all the time. And so uh, I look within myself and there he was. And so I always say, hey, it was the shroud that brought me back to my faith in God. Well, but the other thing is this, and I'm going to say this candidly, even though there are lots of people listening. I serve God by being exactly who I am. He insisted I be on that team. When I tried to quit, he wouldn't let me. <laughs> and it's true. And that's a whole other story unto itself. But mm-hmm. um, So I serve God by being who I am. And think about this. The skeptics hate my guts and refuse or are afraid to debate with me. I can quote the science. And, of course, their big escape is always, oh, well, you're a Christian. So, of course, you're going to say that. They can't say that to me. If I were to become a Messianic Jew, my work with the Shroud would come to a screeching halt, and all the skeptics would jump up and say, see, he was a closet Christian the whole time. That's not going to happen, because I'm not a closet Christian. I'm a man who was given an opportunity to be in that room, a privilege that millions of people probably had more right to be there than me, but God saw fit to put me there, and he put me there for a reason, and that reason is simply to share this information with those to whom it matters. If you look at the front page of Shroud.com, the smartest thing I ever wrote is on that opening paragraph where it says, given the facts, I believe you have to make up your own mind about this. Hmm. And so I'm not trying to preach to people or tell them what to believe. I'm saying, here's the evidence that convinced me. 
Make up your own mind. But, but you're not, uh, you don't have any letters behind your name, PhD, doctor, such and such. Just my initials, BS. <laughs> okay. Well, you're being honest there, yeah. You've been listening to my interview with uh, Barry M. Schwartz, the Shroud of Turin official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, referred to in the acronym STURP, S-T-U-R-P. That was part of a team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud way back in 1978. Barry is currently president of the Stira, S-T-E-R-A, a non-profit corporation in the United States to which he has donated uh, his uh, website, Shroud.com, and his extensive Shroud photographic collection as well as many other important Shroud resources for the purposes of preserving and maintaining all of the materials from that research project back in 1978 for the purposes of making everything available for future research and scientific study. He is currently serving as the president of Stira Incorporated, S-T-E-R-A, and uh, the website again for Barry M. Schwartz is www.shroud.com. Join us the next time for our podcast as we continue in part two of our discussion and interview with Barry M. Schwartz. This is the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio with Avi Ben Mordechai. If you wish to stay up to date with coming home news and information, simply register your email address with us on our website, cominghome.co.il. From time to time, we hope to answer questions and comments from our podcast listeners. So if you have a comment or a question, send us an email address to questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. And when you send us a question, please tell us your first name and where you're from. Also, we would appreciate it greatly if you will do your best to keep your questions short and to the point. Questions will be answered in upcoming podcasts from time to time. Yah willing, we'll hope to see you for the next podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Radio.